Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. Let's just dive right in. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Back in Leviticus chapters 9 and 10, you'll recall an interesting series of events that occurred on the first day that Aaron and his boys were on the job acting as the priesthood in this newly formed tabernacle. In fact, on this first day, things were going swimmingly (laughs) before they took an unexpected turn for the worse. After they finished making all the various offerings on behalf of the congregation, we read how the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle, came down from heaven, filled the Holy of Holies, and fire came out and consumed the offering. This supernatural fire roaring out from the midst of the Holy of Holies was seen as confirmation that their sacrifices had been accepted by the Lord. It was a a glorious time, a wonderful occasion. And in response to, to all of this, we're told that the children of Israel, they shouted as one, they fell on their faces, and they worshiped, and they praised the Lord. Now, while all of that's happening, it doesn't take long for this exuberance to quickly transition into a measure of horror. In fact, Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1 sets the scene. Then Nadab and Abihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. On their first day on the job, in one sensational moment, a flash, two-fifths of the entire priesthood ends up getting fired. Literally. This same consuming fire that had indicated God's acceptance of their offerings now displayed his rejection of these two men, Nadab and Abihu. The dramatic, the public nature of God's judgment served to illustrate that these men's actions on this day in the tabernacle would never be tolerated by a holy God. Now, In light of the seriousness of the task that still lay before them, Aaron and his two remaining sons, men by the name of Eleazar and Ithamar, they have no choice but to kind of suck it up, buttercup, bury their emotions, and finish out their priestly duties. They had no choice. And while things aren't done exactly the way the Lord had prescribed, taking into account the circumstances, we're told uh, chapter 10 closes that Moses was kind of content. He was okay with the way the tasks had been finished. Now, the reason I bring up all of these things is that while chapters 11 through 15 kind of bluntly transition to a section of Leviticus known as the Holiness Code, the opening now of chapter 16 does something important. It intentionally, in the verses we just read, takes us back to the events of chapter 10. I hope you noticed that. Again, in verse 1, we read, After the death of the two sons of Aaron. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron. Like the idea here is that God has something very important that he wants to articulate to Aaron through Moses in light of what's just happened to his two oldest sons. This is the context. Now speaking speaking broadly, chapter 16 will document for us the procedures associated with what would become known in the Hebrew as Yom Kippur. We call it the Day of Atonement. In His wisdom, God will specifically designate one day a year. We'll we'll find, according to verse 29, that this one day would actually be the tenth day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. And it would be on this one day that the high priest was instructed by God to enter behind the veil to go behind the veil into the most holy place of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and he was instructed to go through a set of procedures, all designed to make atonement, not just for himself, but for all of the people of Israel, for their sins. Now before we get into the particulars, there's one thing we should consider right from the jump. 
Like, why did these things, the Day of Atonement, need to be articulated to Aaron in light of the actions of Nadab and Abihu? Because that's the context in which they're established. Now, we spent ample time back in our commentary through Leviticus 10, discussing the actions of these men, as well as what made their fire, their offering, so profane before the Lord. But it would appear, again, in context here, that another contributing factor to God's swift judgment centered on the reality that Nadab and Abihu likely had ventured into the Holy of Holies, which was a no-no. To validate that point, in both Leviticus 10, the original text, and then also in the verses that we read here in 16, we're told that these two men, yes, they make offerings, but where? We're told specifically before the Lord. The implication being is that they went behind the curtain that they shouldn't have. Now, logically, it would make sense why God would now use such an occasion to articulate how this most holy place And the tabernacle, the holy of holies, was to be treated by mortal man. In the chapter, who could enter? Well, that will be answered. No priest can enter but the high priest. When could the high priest enter? Well, that would only be one day a year. The high priest couldn't enter whenever he wanted, but just in a very specific time. What was he to do while inside the holy of holies? Chapter 16 will will articulate these protocols. Why was it so important he obeyed these instructions? Well, as illustrated by Nadab and Abihu, disobedience would result in a swift death. The warning is clear. Since our study in Leviticus makes no mention of the layout of this tent of meeting, the tabernacle. In fact, it was recorded, presented at the end of of Exodus. Just because we're going to be dealing with some of the movements within this tent, I want to just kind of give you a a general layout uh, of the tabernacle itself. The complex was a rectangle. It was defined by a perimeter fence made up of animal skin. No matter where the tabernacle, and it was portable, no matter where it was erected, where it was set up, it was always to face east. In fact, the only entrance into the tabernacle was on the eastern fence the eastern side. Now, if you were working your way through the complex, moving east to, let's say, west, when you first enter the tabernacle, the complex, the first bit of furniture you're going to run into in the outer courtyard was the bronze altar. This was the location where all of the offerings we've been looking at were to be made. Then as you get closer to the tent itself, before you enter, you'll also find out in public, a bronze basin. So we have a bronze altar where the sacrifices were to be made. A little further, before you get into the tent, you have this bronze basin, a mikvah, as they would call in the Hebrew. It would be filled with water. It's like a gigantic bathtub where all the ceremonial cleansing of the priests would take place. Now, once you entered the tabernacle itself, the space was divided into two rooms separated by a thick veil. In the first room, you would have on the right side the table of showbread. Interesting, Jesus said that he's the bread of life. Adjacent to it on the left, you would also have the golden menorah, the candlestick. Interesting, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. The final piece of furniture right in front of the veil, just before you would enter the Holy of Holies, was the altar of incense. Now, behind the veil it would be a smaller room. It was known as the Holy of Holies. And in that room was really only one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, upon which on the top part was the the mercy seat. These golden cherubs on each side. Incredible. This was the place upon which the presence of God would dwell. Now with the layout of the tabernacle in mind, let's get into what the high priest was to do on this one day. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Look at verse 3. Thus the Lord says, Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall 
wash his body and water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering. And one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, to make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots, roll dice, for the two goats. One lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the blood, the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Now before the high priest ever stepped foot behind the veil, this day would begin with quite a bit of prep work. First, according to verse 4, the high priest would remove his normal ornate garments. Remember, the high priest had different garments than the rest of the priest. And they were very colorful, beautiful. Lots of different types of fabrics and threads. This this breastplate of all these different stones. But he he would take off those garments, according to the Lord's instructions. He would wash his body. This is how the day would begin. Before donning a very simple white linen Get up. So he would take off his high priestly attire and he would put on this linen holy garments. Which, by the way, was really the attire of the normal priest. Secondly, the high priest would then select one ram, which would be offered towards the end of this day as a burnt offering for the people, as well as he would select two kids or baby goats which were to also be used, we're told, as the people's sin offering. In verses 7 and 8, we're told these two goats would then be presented before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle with a really interesting procedure happening. Lots would be cast designating one of these two lambs, one of these two goats, to be offered as the sin offering, but the other to be designated as, well, it's called the scapegoat. Now, we'll discuss this in in greater detail later in the study, but I do want to let you know that according to rabbinical tradition, the scapegoat, so, so the one goat that's not going to die here, he would be identified, designated, by a scarlet cord that would be wrapped around his head, his neck. So it would be a designating process. Now, lastly, according to the prep preparation for all these things, on account that this man, the high priest, was going to go behind the, the, the most holiest bit of real estate on the planet. Because he's going to go into the holy of holies, into the presence of Almighty God. Well, it was important in preparation to make sure there was nothing impure about himself. Or, or, or let's say off in his own life. Because if there were, if he were to enter this kind of a space with any type of sin, well, he would die very swiftly and probably violently. So to cover his bases, verses 6 and 11 tell us that the high priest, before he does anything else, was first to offer the bull as a sin offering for himself or his household. According to verse 27, later in the day, the bull for the sin offering of the high priest, and the goat, which is the sin offering for the people, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, would be carried outside the camp, we're told, and burned in the fire. That's significant. The implications are that while the high priest, in his preparation, would slaughter both of these animals in the outer courtyard in order to drain their blood in preparation for what was to occur in the holy place, their bodies were not burned on the altar like so many of the other sacrifices were. They were taken outside the camp. We'll get to that later. Now, as we work our way through the the remainder of the text, keep in mind, the high priest, what's going to happen here is he's going to go inside and out of the Holy of Holies. 
So he's got a bunch of things he's got to do. He's going to go in and come out, go in, come out, go in, come out. Three times we're going to have this motion, this activity of him going in and then coming out. The first time, just if you're a note taker, you might want to jot this down. He goes in to offer incense. The second time he goes in will be to make atonement for himself using the blood of the bull. The third time he goes in will be to now to make atonement for the people with the blood of the goat. Verse 12. Then the high priest shall take a censer full of burning coals. So you got to get yourself in the tabernacle here. The altar of incense is right there, right before the veil. So he goes out to the altar, which is before the Lord, and he gets coals. And he fills the censer with coals. And then he's going in, and, and he also, with his hands, he takes he, he fills one of them with, with sweet incense that's beaten fine. It's never been used. It's fresh. And with the censer in one hand and this handful of incense in the other, he brings it inside the veil. So this is his first trip. And with one hand, he then puts the incense on the fire, which is in the censer, the coals in the other. He's before the Lord that the cloud of incense you know, what's resulting from, from the incense hitting the hot coals, creating this plume, it covers the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. In verse 2, we've already been told that the presence of the Lord manifested in, a, in the cloud above the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. What an incredible scene. I mean, picture that. The high priest taking this handful of incense. He's got his censer, these hot coals. He throws it on there, and it starts to fill the Holy of Holies. But there's already a cloud above the Ark of the Covenant. And this incense and that cloud begins to intermingle, filling this whole presence. The presence of God is in the midst of this. Awesome, incredible, powerful. Now it's at this point, he's got his hands full, the high priest exits the holy place. He disposes of the censer. He's going to need his hands for other things, specifically to pick up this bowl or basin containing the blood of the bullock or the bull that he's already slaughtered for himself. Now, verse 14, he enters a second time. We're told that he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his fingers. Again, this word sprinkle, we, we, we think of it like a little dusting. This is, you know, to take a handful and splatter. Think of it more like splattering. He shall splatter, sprinkle with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. So that was as just as he enters the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Again, we know seven is this, it's, the, it's completion. Now after finishing the task of atoning using the blood of the bull for himself, the Holy of Holies. He exits again. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. So he goes out and he kills the goat. One of these two. The one designated for the Lord, which is for the people. He kills it. He slaughters it. He drains its blood. And he brings it also in, in a basin into the veil. This is now the third and final trip into the Holy of Holies. Specifically, we're told, he goes in to do with that blood, as he did with the blood of the bull, to sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he, the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. This is their general defilement, because of their transgressions or their general rebellion, as it would be translated, and for all of their sins. As we get to the, the bigger point of this, of this passage, you might want to underline all their sins. Not just some, not just a few, all. We're talking a complete atonement. And he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Verse 17, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when the high priest goes in to make atonement in the holy place. So this is a job for the high priest, the high priest alone. There's no other priests involved in the process whatsoever until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, for the assembly of Israel. 
And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, so the bronze altar. He shall make atonement for it. Take some of the blood of the bull, some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar, all around the altar. So he's purifying it. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, consecrating it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring now the live goat. So again, there were two. One has already been slaughtered, offered, blood drained, used. But now we have the second one, the one that's been designated, set aside using this scarlet cord. And Aaron shall lay, so get, the, get this in your mind, he, he'll lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. And he'll confess over this goat all of the iniquities of the children of Israel all of their transgressions concerning their sins, putting them, transferring them onto the head of the goat. And the high priest shall send that goat away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. (laughs) I like that phrase. You don't have to find a perfect man, even a good man. You just need a willing one, a suitable one. The goat shall bear on itself all of their iniquities, into an unhabitable land, separate land. And this suitable man shall then release the goat in the wilderness. Verse 23, Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And he shall again wash his body with water, in the holy place, and then put on his garments. These would be the normal high priestly attire. And then he shall come out and offer his burnt offering, the burnt offering of the people. Uh, These two burnt offerings, by the way, are the rams uh, that were referenced earlier in the passage. This is where they come up. He shall make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering, this again would have been the bull that he had killed for himself and the goat he had offered earlier. The fat of those offerings he shall burn on the altar. However, he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water. Afterwards, he can come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, their bodies are carried outside of the camp. They shall burn in the fire outside of the camp. Their skins, their flesh, and their offal, their dung, Then he who burns them, so the guy charged with that task, shall wash his clothes, also bathe his body in water, then he can come into the camp. Verse 29, This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. Do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells with you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It's a statue forever. Some interesting language. Let me clean up real quick. The idea being articulated to the people is that on this day, this one day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, something well, incredibly significant was being done. Notice the people don't participate at all. They don't pick the animals. They don't bring the animals. This is purely a job for one man in all of Israel, that being the high priest. And yet, because he's doing this thing, everyone needed to stop whatever they were doing for this day. The high priest was doing a work. They couldn't do. Everything else should stop. All national activities came to an end, ceased. More than likely, the people came and even witnessed what was being done. Not only are they commanded here because of the significance of the moment to view the day as a Sabbath of solemn rest. Not only were they to do no work specifically at all, but this idea of you shall afflict your souls, it's used twice here. The idea of that, of that, that phrase is that in addition to just stop working, they needed to take some time to reflect to really consider, to process what was being done by the high priest for them. What their sin was demanding, death of the innocent. They had to contemplate, to think introspectively. Wrapping up the chapter, 
And the priest who is anointed and consecrated, verse 32, to minister as priest and his father's place shall make atonement, put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. It's kind of recapping a summary. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And then we're told, and he, being Aaron, did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, in order to understand the overarching significance of what's happening here in Leviticus 16 on this Day of Atonement, you need to keep in mind a big idea. And that big idea is that this tabernacle of meeting, the place, the space that all of these things are happening in, it wasn't just a mere tent. Like, in fact, according to Acts chapter 7, Hebrews 8, among other places, this tent of meeting was specifically constructed by Moses according to a pattern, a blueprint, that God had given him of the throne room of heaven. Like this tent, situated in the very midst of the camp of Israel, it was a place, an important place, a significant place, where the lines between the temporal and the eternal got blurred. It was a point patterned after heaven, where the physical and the spiritual intertwined. The tabernacle was a location where mortal man had access into the heavenly realm. The presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Not only does this explain why God's so specific about how He wanted the tabernacle made, but it helps us understand why God is so particular about the activities that were taking place within the four walls of the tabernacle. It's why we have so much detail. See, contrary to popular opinion, God deeply cares how he's approached by man. This word holy, not not only do we find this word used a lot in Leviticus, but specifically it's, it's used quite a bit in our passage, chapter 16. The word holy is first introduced to the Hebrew Scriptures in a very interesting place. You don't find the word holy being used in the Bible until you get to Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. When God, in this interaction with Moses, speaking forth from this burning bush that's burning, but it's not burning, this supernatural thing's happening, God speaks from the burning bush to Moses, and He says, Remove your sandals, Moses. Why? For the place that you're standing is holy ground. First mention of the word holy in all of Scripture. You see, the tabernacle was a holy place. Why? Well, because within her walls dwelt the presence of God. That's what made it holy. And with this in mind, you can understand why human access to the Holy of Holies was so restricted And while entering into the Holy Holies, a a dicey proposition for any sinful man. Like no one other than the high priest was ever, ever allowed entrance. And even he could only have access or go behind the veil one day a year, three times. Additionally, as illustrated by the judgment of Nadab and Abihu, and then reinforced by the Lord's candor to Aaron, that if he disobeyed any of these instructions, he was going to die. The stakes when entering behind the veil were incredibly high, even in an ideal dynamic. The first key to understanding or unpacking the significance of this passage is to understand, at its core, the Day of Atonement was all about man gaining access to the presence of God through a single mediator the high priest. Only this one man could ever enter on behalf of the people one day a year. The the second key to understanding the significance of the Day of Atonement centers upon now what would happen as a result of the high priest's important work on this day. If you're a note taker and you're wanting just to jot some things down, first just put access. That's what it's about. 
But then the next two words you can write down is atonement. It's why he's going in. It's why access is being provided, as well as cleansing. Atonement and cleansing. The word atonement is the Hebrew word kafar. It's where we get Yom Kippur, day Yom of atonement, kafar. This word's all over Leviticus. We've talked about it before. And yet I want to point out that it's first use as well. The first time you find the word atonement in the Bible is actually in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. Kind of a bizarre place, honestly. But God is instructing Noah, hey, there's a flood coming. It's going to be problematic. You're going to need to build a boat. What's well, a boat? Well, it's a vessel that's going to keep the water from, you know, drowning you. Okay. You know, there's these bizarre instructions. And in fact, we're told in Genesis 6, verse 14, that God instructed Noah to make an ark of gopher wood and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Cover it, kafar, to cover. If you're familiar with the story, it was that covering of pitch that sealed in the ark, protecting Noah and his family from the judgment of sin and wickedness. Simply defined, the word atonement is to cover. That's what it means in the Hebrew. But we understand it possesses, obviously, a much more deeper theological significance and meaning, especially in relation to human sin. Not only does the word describe a process by which our sins are covered over, no longer being attributed to us by God, but atonement results and a reconciled relationship with our Creator. I've heard in my prep this week, John Corson repeatedly defines atonement. I think it's great. He defines it this way, at one meant. Just take the word and break it down into three. At one meant. It's not just that our sins are covered. It's not just that God doesn't see them anymore. That it protects us from a judgment but it reconciles us to God. Through atonement, we're at one We have one with God. Beautiful. The entire purpose for the high priest making these various sin and burnt offerings on behalf of the people, and then entering into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat on top of the ark, was to make atonement for sin on behalf of the people, knowing there was nothing they could do to make atonement for themselves. They had to have a priest, the high priest, make atonement for them. No work, no action, no sacrifice. There was nothing, no involvement of the people. This was something that had to be done by a mediator who was given access one day a year to make atonement. He did a work for them. In the end, it was the blood of these substitutionary sacrifices that God accepted on this day that not only covered over the people's sins, making them right with God, what we call righteous, but it was the blood that also acted as a purifying and cleansing agent. Like what's amazing about the Day of Atonement, this entire theological concept, it's not just that their debt was paid before God. Okay, God, you and I, we're good, we're right. But what's amazing is that the evidence they had ever been delinquent in the first place, also gone. It's not just your debt was paid, it was cleansed, wiped away, no longer there. You didn't have bad credit, even while your debt had been paid. We call this justification. Now God sees you just as if I'd never sinned. Now, one of the unique aspects of the Day of Atonement was how this deeper spiritual work is illustrated for the people. Keep in mind, this is an entirely different society than ours. Entirely different culture, entirely different way of viewing the world. Like we as Westerners, we think through things very logically, we process things very uh, systematically. But in the East, big ideas, truths, yes, they would get laid out in in somewhat of a linear fashion, but more often than not, big ideas 
were articulated to the people using big illustrations. Something they could see, something they, they could sense. Interesting way of communication. Now back in verse 5, the high priest was to select from the congregation two goats as a sin offering. So both goats were part of the sin offering. Once chosen, lots, cast, leaving one goat with a death sentence, designating the other to be this scapegoat. Let's get back to that idea. In the Hebrew, the word scapegoat, it's Azazel. It's, it's a complicated word. That said, the best definition seems to be that the Azazel is the one who takes away. That that's what the word means. The one who takes away. We land on that definition not so much because of the Hebrew, but just really what the goat accomplished. Look again at Leviticus 16, verses 20 through 22. Let me just kind of recap what happens to the Azazel. In order to illustrate for the people this complete atonement provided through the death of the first goat on behalf of their sins, not just forgiving them, making them right with God, but the blood cleansing them and justifying them before the Father. The high priest then, to illustrate what's really happened, how glorious a reality this really is, he takes where the people could see the Azazel, this other goat. It's got this scarlet cord around its head. He places his hands. He confesses publicly all of the sins of the people onto this poor goat. Goat's looking up like, what did I do, man? I'm just designated the Azazel. Everything gets transferred onto the goat. And then the Azazel is led by the hand of a suitable man out of the tabernacle, through the camp, outside of the camp, far into the wilderness. Now, it's a good thing that they didn't use like a dog because the dog's going to find his way back. Goats are stupid. You're going to get that goat way out there, and he ain't coming back. You get him far enough that the Azazel will never be seen or heard from again. I mentioned earlier a rabbinical tradition claiming that a scarlet cord was tied around the neck of the Azazel in order to distinguish him from the goat who was sacrificed. Well, the same source records that this suitable man upon releasing the Azazel into the wilderness, would remove the scarlet cord. After he's gotten done cleansing himself, coming back into the camp, he would come to the tabernacle, to the outer gate, and he would hang this scarlet cord that was on the Azazel there at the gate, where everyone could see. Again, this is non-biblical. We can't verify it specifically, but it's interesting. Multiple rabbinical sources record that over the next few weeks, that scarlet cord that was on the Azazel would change colors, that it would turn into white. Now, rabbinical sources, they can be unreliable, but it's interesting, isn't it? Think about it. Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 1 verse 18, recording the words of the Lord, he says, Though your sins were as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Like, where does he pick up that imagery from? Could it be the Azazel? The evidence that indeed your sins as scarlet are now white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know, additionally, just to kind of throw this out, this is a freebie. But the Mishnah and the Talmud Again, sources that talk about this entire scarlet cord and this whole process. The rabbis document, and again, these were the rabbis that rejected Jesus, crucified Jesus. But they record that roughly 40 years before the temple was destroyed, that for those 40 years, when the scarlet cord was brought back from the Azazel and hung on the gate, you know what didn't happen? It never turned color. It never changed. Something had happened. That God's displeasure was being communicated. Their sins would not be removed. Even though the Azazel, the whole picture in some ways, had broken down. 
I'm going to take a gander what, what happened 40 years before 70 A.D. Now, practically, as incredible as this Day of Atonement was, we can concede the drawbacks are kind of obvious. Like, for starters, the atonement, cleansing, the forgiveness provided by the blood of the bull and the goat being sprinkled on the mercy seat, as cool as that is, let's be real, it's woefully insufficient. Like every single year, the exact same ritual was required, and a whole new set of sacrifices had to be made. The interesting thing about the Day of Atonement is it had to come every single year, which meant the sacrifices was happening. As cool as it was, it was insufficient. It was just at best temporary. Atonement may have covered past sins, but what was occurring was powerless to deal with man's internal condition. Man wasn't cleansed. To this point in Hebrews 10, we're, we're told very clearly that it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. In the end, the only sufficient sacrifice, the only blood that could permanently atone for our sins, sins of humanity, would have to be the blood and the sacrifice of a sinless, perfect man. Not the bloods of bulls and goats. You know, beyond having an insufficient sacrifice, the other brutal reality of the Day of Atonement is these people had an ineffective high priest who, because of his own sin nature, like half of his day is occupied intermediating for the people. No, he's got to deal with his own sin. The first offerings he makes have to be for himself, not for anyone else because he's sinful. Furthermore, it's also true that access to God As cool as it was that there was access to God, let's be real, that man could actually go behind the veil, that access was predicated upon a singular place on earth existing, the tabernacle and later the temple, and even then it was limited to one man, one day. Like case in point, like a serious crisis, a complication would arise concerning the Day of Atonement, if let's say the place all these things were to happen no longer existed. Which is the problem Jews have today. Because how do you make atonement if there's no place for sacrifice and no holy of holies to enter? With the obvious flaws of the entire setup in mind, limited access, an ineffective priest, an insufficient sacrifice, you got to have to kind of ask yourself, what's the point then? Like, what's the point of all of this? And as with so many of the things we've encountered in the book of Leviticus, the answer to chapter 16 is that it's deeply important because it establishes a legal precedent by which the work of Jesus could be accomplished on our behalf. We could could take, seriously, four or five studies to deal with the Day of Atonement, but just kind of flying through a few of these points Because of Leviticus 16, again, creating a dynamic where we could have a mediator, Jesus, because of the precedent, can be our high priest. This is why. To this point, Hebrews chapter 7, we read of Jesus, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need, interestingly, does not need daily as other high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For Jesus did this once and for all when he offered himself up. Because of Leviticus 16, we can have a high priest and Jesus can fill the role for us. Let's, with this in mind, consider how for Aaron, this entire process required a humbling. Side point, this is where we're going to get a little Christmassy. Think about it for a moment. The whole process. Aaron's going to make atonement as the high priest, as the mediator for the people. It's an important work. It's a work only he can do. But in order for him to accomplish that work of making the sacrifices and sprinkling the blood and letting go of the scapegoat, in order for all of that to happen, what was the first thing he had to do before he did anything else? He had to, and looking in the mirror, seeing his heavenly robes, he's ornate garments, he had to take off them and lay them aside, his attire, his glory. And what did he have to do? He had to don linen cloth, 
simple robes to do the work. And then when he was done with the work, what did he do? The high priest, we took those garments off and he put back on his heavenly attire. Guys, that's what Christmas is about. It's about the high priest of heaven, God, laying aside his heavenly glory, knowing he had to come and do something to make atonement for you and I. He humbled himself and came as a man, we're told, in Philippians chapter 2. Considered himself of no reputation. And he did a work of atonement. But then when he was done, hey, he returns to glory and he takes his proper seat at the right hand of God. Hey, this Christmas, when you consider that baby in a manger, think of the high priest. It was a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. You want to take a guess what kind of fabric was swaddling clothes? It was linen. On a related note, I told you you'd find Christmas in chapter 16. Because we do have an effective high priest, a high priest in Jesus. What's amazing is that there is now no limitation to our access to God. Like in Leviticus 16, only one man once a year could enter into God's presence. And yet today, I want you to know, my friend, not only do you and I have free access to the throne room of grace through Jesus, anytime, any place we want it, <laughs> but according to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, the presence of God no longer even needs a physical dwelling, a physical structure. Why? Because you and I, we've become the Holy of Holies. Walking into this world, temple of the Holy Spirit. Because of Leviticus 16, Jesus can be our sufficient sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, we read that Christ came as high priest of good things to come, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, obtaining eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats sanctifies the purification of flesh, so if it had some value, how much more shall the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God, now cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If that blood, insufficient, could cleanse at least temporarily, think about how much more potent, effective, the blood of Christ. And one of the things I'm just blown away by concerning Leviticus 16 is the idea that on the Day of Atonement, the sin offering included two goats who possess two distinct roles. But what makes these two goats so amazing is that they both, working in tandem, illustrate the two separate works of Jesus for you and I. Obviously, Jesus is the goat who was killed to provide atonement. The sacrifice. Whose blood was spilled. Like, like this goat on the cross, Jesus was the ultimate atoning sacrifice. His blood was spilt for our sins, and by its covering, we are forgiven and our lives are washed clean. Can I get an amen? Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we're told, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. It's interesting. But leading up to the time of Christ, the Ark of the Covenant had been missing. In fact, it had been missing. It goes missing sometime leading up to Nebuchadnezzar seizing Jerusalem, destroying the temple, taking a lot of the artifacts back to Babylon. Truth be told, the Ark of the Covenant never reemerges. It's gone in that moment. It's not present in Zerubbabel's reconstructed temple or the remodel taken on by Herod the Great. No Ark of the Covenant. No mercy seat. My point is that for the 600 or so years leading up to Jesus, the procedures involved with the Day of Atonement were impossible because there was no ark, no mercy seat to splatter any blood upon. Imagine for a minute the moment 
that the veil was torn from top to bottom when Jesus cried out from the cross, to Telestai, it is finished. When Jesus' work was done for us and that veil was torn in the temple, imagine for a moment the somber and eerie scene by all those who were present, what they witnessed, an empty holy of holies. The veil was torn. What we don't talk about, nothing was in the room. There was nothing there. Nothing at all. Like without a mercy seat, exactly where had the high priest been splattering the blood when he entered? Yeah, I contend that just maybe the very first scene witnessed by Aaron 1,500 years earlier indeed manifested one final time. One final time. In fact, manifested three days after Jesus' death. Now follow me. But if we read through John chapter 20, by verse 11, Peter and John, they've come. They've confirmed Jesus' body's missing. And they leave behind Mary Magdalene, who's standing outside of the tomb. She's weeping. And at some point, we're told that she stoops down and she looks into the tomb and notice the scene that she saw. Let me paint it for you. Verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting at one head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. And and imagine that. Here you have have this rectangular-shaped ledge where Jesus' body had been laid. And because this tomb had never been used, the seat that Jesus had been laid likely had remaining seven bloodstains. Why do we say seven? Well, there were seven locations in which Jesus bled. His head, his back, his side, both hands and both feet. So you have this rectangular box shape with seven blood splatters on the top of it. And then what else do you see? You see, laying there, linen clothes, the evidence that a high priest had been present, with two angels sitting on each side of the box. In Exodus chapter 25, God stipulated in the creation of the ark that they were to make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. That, by the way, would make it a rectangular box. And they were to make two cherubim of gold. Angels. Placing them at each side of the mercy seat. Well, three days earlier, the religious world had peered into the Holy of Holies. And they saw a room that illustrated their religion. Emptiness. On this new day, Mary peered upon a mercy seat in which the presence of God had rested for three days and she saw the splattered blood seven times of our redemption. A high priest had been present. And yet, as amazing as this is, the Azazel, the scapegoat, it deepens the picture further. Understand, the reason Jesus was able to take our sin upon himself, centered upon the legal precedent established with the high priest's ability to actually transfer the sins and therefore guilt of all the people upon the goat, the Azazel. Again, this is purely tradition. But when it came to the point where the, the Azazel was to be led out of the camp and into the wilderness, representing the sins of the people, as that Azazel was carried, again, through the camp, the people would cry out, away with it, away with it, away with it. Why? Because their sins were being taken away. In fact, the goat was seen with such disdain that it became a later custom in Israel that this suitable man charged with leading the goat into the wilderness couldn't even be a Jew. It was a Gentile. Think about that for a minute. that sound like anything? The Azazel taking upon itself the sins of the people before a Gentile led it out of the camp as a mob of Jews cheered away 
away, away. In John chapter 19, we read that now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king, and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Little did they know they were sending away the Azazel. The sin offering demanded two goats, one who bore the sins of the people and died, and another who carried their sins away and lived. I need to say this this morning, but if Satan is beating that condemnation drum in your life, telling you you're not good enough, reminding you of your frailty and your faults and your insufficiency, how you fall short, I want you to know this morning unequivocally that Jesus not only died as the first goat to forgive you and to cleanse you, but he's also the Azazel and the sense that he carries those sins away no more. Jeremiah 31, their sins I will remember no more. Psalms 103, as far as the east is to the west, he's removed our transgression. Isaiah 44, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Micah 7 verse 19, he shall cast sin, your sin and mine, into the deepest parts of the sea. But what this also tells us, and this is glorious, is that while the first work of Jesus as the first goat has been completed. His work as our Azazel continues because the Azazel is still alive. Like today, Jesus still wants you and I to come to Him and lay upon Him our sins, lay upon Him the things that are weighing us down. He wants to give us a fresh start continually. May I ask this morning, Are you carrying around burdens that as the Azazel, Jesus wants to free you from? Like, if this is you, 1 Peter 5, verse 7, we're told to cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Andy, if you could come up. We're going to do two songs And guys, if you could go ahead and bring the communion elements down. I wanted to leave communion to now, after the study. Because this whole idea of Jesus being the Azazel, it has a renewed, like it has a, a, there's a new component to communion I'd never thought about until now. That when you hold those elements, There were two goats acting in concert for you. One died, the other one's alive. One atones, the other carries away. And this morning when you hold those elements, if there's something in your life that's burdening you and keeping you down, if there's a sin that's weighing, cast your care to Him as the Azazel. When you hold those elements, think about what the, as the Day of Atonement commands us contemplate you can put them on Jesus and he'll take them far away far away never to be seen but Zach you don't know what I've done there's a story I ran across this illustration quite a bit in my preparation there was a woman a Filipino lady very deeply spiritual. And her priest really kind of hated her for it. She actually claimed that she talked to God. And so kind of in a bit of a skeptical attitude, he comes up to her one day and he's like, you say you, you speak to God. She's like, I do. Deep within my soul, he speaks to me and I speak back to him. And the priest was like, okay, let's put this to a test. When I was in college, I did something no one else knows. It was bad, I knew it. It was sin, I committed it. Never told a soul. No one on this planet has any idea what I did. But I know God does. So if you really speak to God, this week you pray, and you say, God, you tell me, 
what my priest did back in college. Okay. Well, I'll pray. Comes back the next week, and the priest comes up, kind of defiant, says, Well, did God tell you? She says, Oh, he did. You got a little surprised. I said, Yeah, we talked at length about it. But as much as I brought it up, that you claimed he knew about it, God just kept saying, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. Like, that's the gospel. Like, like this whole message, when it was in its infancy and people were hearing it, there was no other way they could describe it than just saying, man, that's good news. That's what the, go- that's the word gospel means, good news. <laughs> that's good news. He's not only atoned for your sin, that's permanent, but he's carried it away and he'll keep carrying it away and he'll keep carrying it away. And so if you're carrying it today, that's not your job, it's the job of the Azazel. And so when you take of the elements, take a moment in yourself. And if there's a care, a burden, a hurt, a worry, cast it on him, for he cares for you. So Father, Lord, thank you for that word.